Hi, and welcome to North of 48. It's Labor Day. It's September the 5th. Hope you had a good Labor Day. I had to work, but that's okay. It's soon to be September the 6th, and right now we're at 14 degrees Celsius. This puts us in the 60s in Fahrenheit, but we're pretty tough because we've been up to 33 degrees Celsius, so low 90s Fahrenheit for the past week. It's been hot, and then now we get cool. I hope you're having a great week. I got some stuff to talk to you about. Today is the 195th day of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. The special military operation, or as we in the rest of the world call, the war on Ukraine. I want to talk a little bit about an article written by Dueling Islands on the Ukraine Reddit. It was uh, very well done. I'm not going to read all of it by any means, but I just want to make sure that Dueling Islands gets the credit for it. And you can read read it um, on the Ukraine uh, Reddit blog. And he's writing about Vasily Stus. Um, he was, uh, well, on September 4th, it was the 37th anniversary of his death. And Dueling Islands says he's been thinking all these months since March that it's important to circle back and let you know more about his beautiful life. Vasil Stus was a Ukrainian and a poet, and he was not afraid to challenge the Communist Party and the Soviet regime of the USSR by himself. He was not broken by concentration camps nor by solitary confinement, and though he eventually paid with his life, he also won. One of his poems from 1979 has this verse, You will no longer perish, stout, land-sacked and slaved for centuries, Oppressors cannot choke you out with Siberia's or Slovakia's. He was born in the Vinnytsia Oblast into a family of farmers that struggled to survive during the horrific events of the first half of the 20th century. Russian occupation, World War II, and then Russian occupation once again pushed the family to bounce around. To avoid both forced collectivization and his family dying of starvation, Vasily's father got a job at a chemical plant in Donetsk. And the Stus family permanently, semi-permanently settled there. Young Vasily was an excellent student and learned a number of languages. While he was working on his PhD, he taught in a secondary school in the town of Horlevica. While in graduate school, Vasily composed and submitted the first collection of his poetry, Whirlpool, and published a number of literary and critical articles. He also printed translations of Goethe, Rilke, and Lorca. But the poetic and quiet-natured Stuss was about to become very fierce and loud. In the 1960s, September 4, 1965, before the start of a screening of a beautiful Ukrainian movie called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, Vasily got up and addressed the packed hall by saying who is against tyranny. Stand up. Young Stus could not be quiet as his friend and colleague Ivan Svitlichny was arrested by the Soviet regime. Stus later wrote about this. I believe that in such circumstances, silence is a crime. I could not bear it. I could not remain silent. Another stanza from his poem, The Whirlpool, is... A thunder of resurrection on the mountain is being announced for me. Smash your fists against despair, biting within the Copper Mountain. Stuss was expelled from graduate school and K-12 
kicked out of the student dormitory. This was the beginning of a life of destitution, humiliations, and persecutions. Yet, facility remained unwavering in his one-man duel against the Soviet communist regime. He needed to eat. Vasily took many odd jobs. He worked in a mine as a railway worker and construction site worker in a boiler house and in the subway. Briefly, he worked as an engineer of a design bureau. In the mid-60s, he married and became the father of his son, Dimitro. At the same time, Vasily Stuss wrote poems, and he prepared to publish both his poetry collections, Whirlpool and Winter Trees. When he received a refusal to publish them, he turned to the Union of Writers of the Ukraine-Soviet Republic for support, and even to the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Ukraine, claiming that the refusal violates his right as a citizen. He also wrote to the Communist Party leaders about arrests among the creative intelligentsia of Ukraine. Stuss's actions were not naive. He knew that the Soviet regime had no intention to right any wrongs they perpetrated. But he could not just remain silent, as according to his moral compass, it is a crime. In 1972, January 12th, the poet was arrested. He spent the next nine months in isolation in a pre-trial detention center. In September of 1972, Stuss was sentenced to five years of imprisonment and three years of exile on charges of anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda. A stanza from his poem, The Winter Trees, goes like this. The snow wishes to sleep. Accustomed to the ground, it forgot the path of blue that led from sky to earth. The entire term of Vasily's imprisonment was spent in a Mordavian camps in Russia. Most of the poems that Stuss wrote in the camp were confiscated and destroyed. Only a few escaped through the letters to his wife. At the end of his term in 1977, Stuss was sent to the village of Amenia Matrosov Megadon region, where he worked until 1979 in the gold mines. From prison, he applied to the Supreme Soviet of the USSR to renounce his citizenship. Having Soviet citizenship is an impossible thing for me. To be a Soviet citizen is to be a slave. Many years passed, and Ivan Drok, a Ukrainian writer and dissident, would say this about Vasilistos. Vasily never compromised with the Soviet government. He was always himself. He did not bend behind the barbed wire as other fighters against totalitarianism. When faced by the guards, he always spoke the truth. I will say frankly, there are very few people like Vasily, not only in Ukraine, but also in the whole territory of the former Soviet Union. After returning to Kiev, Vasily Silly joined the Helsinki Group on Human Rights. In May 1980, he was arrested once again as a particularly dangerous recidivist. Sentenced to 10 years of forced labor and five years of exile. During his trial, he was unwillingly represented by Viktor Medvedchuk, who later became a prominent pro-Russian politician. Medvedchuk did not attempt to deny the charges leveled against us. There's no point on wasting too much time on Medvedchuk just because that he is a personal friend of the President of the Russian Federation and is currently under arrest in Ukraine.
Vasily served his sentence at the Perm 36, an infamous gulag for political prisoners located deep within Russia. On one September morning of 1986, his wife received a message about Vasily's death. In 1989, Vasily Stos, along with Oleska Tiki and Yuri Letvin, who also died in this camp and were buried in a local cemetery, they were repatriated to Ukraine and buried in Kiev at Balkovo Cemetery. On August 28, 1985, Stos was put in a solitary confinement as he allegedly broke a camp rule of touching the bunk bed bedding while wearing work clothes. According to his fellow inmates, Stuss was reading a book while standing and leaned on the top bunk bed with his elbow. He received two weeks of solitary confinement. His fellow inmates, all inmates, all political, heard him asking for medicine on September 3rd, saying he feels chest pains. This is the last time anyone heard from him. By the next morning, he was dead, a full 20 years since his first defiant action. His death was concealed by the regime as a natural heart attack. In 1985, Vasily Stos was nominated by a team of international writers and critics for a Nobel Prize in Literature. But with his death, his nomination was in vain. Stos was a problem for the regime as long as he was alive. The USSR at that time was embarking on a so-called perestroika in order to strengthen financial bonds with the West, as the USSR was absolutely broke and destitute. Having a political prisoner and a Nobel Prize winner would absolutely throw a wrench into Moscow's narrative that political repression in the Soviet Union was a thing of the past. His death in a Soviet prison camp in 1985 continues to challenge the many assumptions that people have about Russians, particularly the Soviets and the people running the USSR. Vasily spoke to his son when the KGB came to arrest him. He said, Today, my son, you experienced perhaps the greatest humiliation and disappointment in your life, not so long life. I know how painful it is for a man to realize that he is powerless. It is heartbreaking, as it is to me now to know that you see this injustice and there is no way to help. But we have to endure. I don't know if we'll see each other again, so I'm asking you just one thing. Forgive these people today, KGB employees who caused you, your mother, and me so much pain. Forgive them. But remember it as a lesson so that you never do anything like this to others. Despite all the untruth, one must be able to love, believe, and hope. In his final poem, he says, How good that I am not afraid of death, and do not ask how heavy is my cross, that I do that I not bend before mendacious judges in anticipation of an unknown fate. I have lived and loved and not fallen prey to hatred, curse, or remorse. My nation to you I shall return, and in death I will turn to life. With my afflicted yet unblemished face, as your son, I will fall upon the earth and honestly gaze into thy honest face and drench myself with honest tears. So I, um, I did not know uh, much about this fellow, 
Vasily Stus and uh, the poems he had uh, he had written and the life he, he had lived all under duress. May you rest in peace. It's interesting the word gulag. Gulag is actually an acronym. In Russian it means main administration of camps. So basically a branch of the secret police devoted to concentration camps. In the 20th century, Russia operated hundreds of gulags and they held more than 28 million prisoners. Gulags were scattered throughout the USSR, not only in Siberia, but by the mid-1940s, there were over 30 gulags dedicated to children who were enemies of the Soviet Union. The Slovakia prison camp is considered the original blueprint for many other gulags throughout Russia. It's a former monastery. Slovakia was used as a prison even by the Tsars of Russia before the USSR elevated the activities there to a new level of brutality at a scale. After killing and imprisoning the monks there, Soviet secret police set about creating a wonderland of torture and murder. Prisoners were forced to, for labor digging in the White Sea, the Baltic Canal, which alone led up to 100,000 prisoner deaths. Ukrainians held captive there referred to it as a land of torment and despair. Many of the prisoners of Slovakia were Ukrainian luminaries of poetry, prose, music, and art, and were later similarly executed in the killing fields of Sandermok, which is just one example of mass murder. The Russians sent 1,116 prisoners on a barge away from the island on the White Sea. All but five of these prisoners were executed by the NKVD at Sandermok in October and November of 1937. Among those killed were 289 members of the Ukrainian intelligentsia, the executed Renaissance. One of the thousands of victims was a woman who was eight months pregnant. She was allowed to give birth and then shot, aged 28. I crossed the threshold into a room. A huge number of children are under the age of six, in small prison clothes and numbers on the back and on the chest, like convicts. These are the same numbers as their mothers. It's the worst thing when children have numbers on them. This is from the memoirs of the Kalmak, writer David Kugel Tinov. Another gulag, famous gulag actually, is Norisk. It's rather famous as being one of the ugliest and most depressing cities in the world. A very good Canadian documentary called The Moon of Nickel and Ice was released in 2017. It documents Norisk and reveals the fiery smelters and blackened earth of the world's most northerly city one of the most productive mining cities in the world. Norisk's nickel mines produce 1% of global sulfur dioxide emissions, and heavy metals pollution is so severe that it has actually become economically feasible to mine surface soil. But this Norisk is a heavy, heavy, closed city of strategic importance.
The corrective labor camp was one of the most murderous and dark prisons of the Gulag system. The risk was home to over 300,000 political prisoners, about 70% of them Ukrainian. The prisoners arrived in frozen empty valleys. That regular drop in temperature from minus 31 Celsius to minus 52 Celsius, which is minus 62 Fahrenheit. And they themselves built the massive city of industry that you see Russians living and working in today. Their bones are in the concrete and lost deep underground in the mines. Many of the people living in the risk are the descendants of these tragic figures. In 1953, shortly after Joseph Stalin's death, there was a revolt called the Norisk Uprising and it had leadership from prominent prisoners from Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Georgia. The revolt lasted 69 days, the most substantial strike in Gulag history. Prisoners did not have weapons, but they used nonviolent methods through the leadership of a man journalists have dubbed the Ukrainian Gandhi. Yevhen Heretsiak. Nobody's spirits fell. People would tell me how they were shot at, beaten up, and crushed. They said this without sadness, fear, or even anger, only with good humor. Prison cells were full of not only the cracking of broken bones and moans of the wounded, but also of cheerfulness. Nobody wept or was sad. This is Yevhen Heretsiak one of the Ukrainian leaders of the Norisk uprising. Our third prison to talk about is the Moscow prison camp, Dimitrovlag, which prisoners uh, did the construction of the Moscow-Volga Canal. 80% of the potable water in Moscow is supplied by a 130-kilometer, 80-mile-long canal. Just a staggeringly large civil works project. That was built by the broken and tortured bodies of 200,000 political prisoners at the height of Stalin's great terror. Despite the deaths and brutal conditions, this prison camp was kept to a higher optic standards as it was much more likely that some foreign ambassador or journalist would have occasion to witness the conditions. Considering it runs directly through the heart of Moscow, you could almost wonder if the public of Moscow knows how they got their drinking water. And where are we going with this knowledge of prison camps? Why, we're going to Perm 36, where Vasily Stos was held. This was the last gulag in operation in Russia from 1946 to 1988. Yes, 1988. During its first two and a half decades, it more or less resembled the model of other gulags, that focused on labor or die policies. But in 1972, Perm 36 was converted into what many consider to be the harshest political camp of the country and operated till it closed in 1988. It included a special regime facility to house political prisoners they considered especially dangerous state criminals in 24-hour isolation cells. The perimeter of the camp was secured by a system of five fences patrolled by guards and dogs. Psychological torture was standard and naked prisoners would be subjected to exposure at 30 degrees Celsius minus or minus 22 Fahrenheit. 
Many prisoners who were highly educated and brilliant intellectuals went insane from the conditions and ended their own lives. Among the many Ukrainian political prisoners held at the camp were, of course, Vasily Stus, who died there on September 4, 1985, Valery Marchenko, Yevhen Sverstuk, and Levko Lukianenko. Perm 36 is the only remaining gulag that was not fully decommissioned, and there was even a museum there until 2015. After the events of 2014 in the Ukraine, the museum, which until then had been open about what happened there, was mitigated by nationalists in the Russian government. Since then, all references to Stalin have been removed, and the museum has been repurposed to hide Soviet oppression and highlight World War II patriotism. Vasily Stos wrote this in his notebook while he was at the prison camp. Psychologically, I understood that the prison gates had already opened for me, and that any day now they would close behind me, and close for a long time. But what was I supposed to do? Ukrainians were not able to leave the country in any way. I didn't want to go beyond these borders, since who then here in great Ukraine would become the voice of indignation and protest. This was my fate. And you don't choose your fate. You accept it, whatever that fate may be. And when you don't accept it, it takes you by force. However, I had no intention of bowing my head down, whatever happened. Behind me was Ukraine, my oppressed people whose honor I had to defend or perish. Selistos in his notebook at the prison camp. I should end it there, but there's one more notorious gulag that we should talk about, and it's Koloma. To a genocidal Russian gulag administrator, the remote area of Koloma has it all. An extreme abundance of forestry, resources, uranium, gold, silver, coal, and oil. Koloma was one of the most notorious gulags for good reason. Even traveling that far east as part of a prisoner shipment was likely to kill you. And tens of thousands died in transit alone. But how do you extract resources from an area that is one of the world's largest wildernesses with no transportation infrastructure? Simple. Just build a 2,000 kilometer long highway. Many thousands of political prisoners from the Koloma Gulag died while building this highway. Their bones were incorporated into the construction due to the frozen permafrost. The winter in Koloma lasts for six months, and average lows are minus 50 Celsius or minus 58 Fahrenheit. Many of the prisoners in Koloma were academics or intellectuals. They included Mikhailo Kravchuk, a Ukrainian mathematician, who by the early 1930s had received considerable acclaim in the West. After a trial for reluctance to take part in the accusations of some of his colleagues, he was sent to Koloma, where he died in 1942. Hard work in the labor camp, the harsh climate, and meager food, poor health, as well as accusations and abandonment by most of his colleagues took their toll. Kravchuk perished in Magadan, 
about 6,000 kilometers, 4,000 miles from his birthplace in Ukraine. Kravchuk's last article appeared soon after his arrest in 1938. However, shortly after, his name was stricken from books and journals by Soviet secret police. The Russian camp commander, Naftali Frankel, says, We have to squeeze everything out of a prisoner in the first three months. After that, we don't need him anymore. A Ukrainian woman named Vera Filiak, who is at Koloma Gulag, says, The standard of production for the prisoners was impossible to fulfill. Often women who worked in logging died from rupture of the diaphragm because they could not drag a heavy tree for many kilometers. At the uranium mine, prisoners faced constant radiation poisoning by the very resources they extracted. Tin can lids were stamped with prisoner numbers, which served as their tombstones. The skulls were sawn in half during autopsy so Soviet scientists could study uranium exposure. These relics of fallen political prisoners are strewn on the landscape of Koloma. One person writes, I was born in the Lviv Oblast in Ukraine at a large farm in the Carpathian Mountains. I intended music school, but I never finished because I was arrested before the exam. I had joined a small literary group where we studied Ukrainian classic literature and history. One day, a fellow student informed on us to the NKVD, the sacred police of Stalin, and we were all arrested. It was 1945, and I was 17 years old. That was Andrea Kraswa Svi recalling his arrest before his deportation to the uranium mine at Koloma. He couldn't finish his interview as the pain was too much. Many Russians in the Koloma region continue to leave fresh flowers at local statues of Soviet leaders. Sorry for the mispronunciation on some of these um, Slavic names. Uh, their tongue twister is pretty hard. Shouldn't be for me, uh, but yes, they are. So it's amazing we started talking about a poet named Vasily Stus. And we wound up going through the gulags of, of Soviet Russia. When you're in prison for your political beliefs and working hard labor and you die at such, uh, we're grateful that uh, Vasily got some notes out and some poems. It's a hard thing. And, and one that I'm glad in the Western world we don't have to worry about, at least I hope not. We should be able to speak our mind. We should always vote for our rights to speak our mind and have an opinion. And I hope in your country uh, you get to speak your mind and have an opinion, but also listen to other people about their opinion. Well, I really don't have any Canadian uh, interest to tell you about. The only thing I can say is that's Canadian is uh, I hope you have a pleasant week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.